Hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the book of Exodus, reading from the third chapter, verses 7 through 15. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, the land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him to to do something supernatural which is to impress upon our finite, fallen minds the nature of the holiness of God. Let's pray. Dear Father, I have an impossible task this morning. I know I can't do it. I know that only you can. I know that your spirit stands between my, in my uh, insufficient words and the understanding, the hearing of the people who are listening. And you magnify those words, you amplify them, you apply them exactly as you want to. So I pray for that this morning because I know that there is no way that I can find the words, that I can accurately or with the degree of majesty discuss your holiness. And yet it's essential, I believe, that for us to understand your holiness so that we can understand your grace, so that we can understand your salvation and your son Jesus Christ and, and why we should be reverent and on our faces worshiping you, forever grateful for the salvation you have given us. Help us to see you as you are, to understand your transcendent holiness this morning just to a degree, and we will give you the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Jesus was invited to a Pharisee's house. His name was Simon for lunch or dinner, I'm not sure. But while they were there reclining at a table, and you know how they ate, laying down with their feet away from the table, a woman came in and began to anoint his feet with ointment, cry, kiss his feet, and wipe them clean with her hair. 
a very provocative scene, actually, and too much for the uber-pious Jews who were there. And so they complained. And as they complained, Jesus told them a short little story about a man who had two debtors. One of them owed him 500 denarii. The other owed him 50, and he forgave both of them. And so he asked his host, well, which one loved more? Which one had the greatest degree of grace? Which one was the most thankful? And he accurately said, well, the man who owed 500 denarii. And so Jesus then applied that to the woman who was washing his feet with her hair and said, her sins, which are many... He, he, he never condoned her sinfulness. He had said that she was a great sinner, but her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, the only thing that I want you to remember from that story for this morning is that Jesus establishes the fact that there is a direct relationship between the exalted nature of the forgiver and the sin of the forgiven. That the grace that comes about as far as that forgiveness is directly proportionate to the distance between forgiver and forgiven. And he told another story. Both of these come from Luke about two men who were going up to the temple to worship. One of them was a Pharisee, and you know this story well, and he was full of himself, and he was talking about how righteous he was, and he was listing off all of the good things that he did. And finally he said, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this defiled, profane sinner over here, and points to the other man who was a tax gatherer, considered to be pretty much the lowest of the low in Hebrew society. Well, the focus turns to that tax gatherer who won't even lift his head to heaven, but is pounding his chest and crying out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, Jesus is talking about justification, but what I want you to pull from that story is that what Jesus was making the point is that there is a distance between the forgiver and the forgiven. And just because the one who wants to be forgiven forgiven, begins to elevate himself in his own sight with an effort to cut off the distance between him and the forgiver and thereby bring the forgiver down to his level so that his Piety will be acceptable in the eyes of the forgiver. Jesus says that doesn't work. Okay? In, in, in fact, not only does it not work, it destroys the very grace that you think you were bringing down. Let me explain. The grace of the woman that he talked to, of the first story, the grace was great because her sin was great. But the fact that she was forgiven in no way altered the holiness of the forgiver. That remained. What was necessary was a tremendous amount of grace that would forgive the sin that she had. Brothers and sisters, we live in a culture that cannot even make the pretense of holiness or righteousness anymore. We are so fallen in the culture around us and so unholy that we don't even make the pretense of trying to lift ourselves up, to elevate ourselves in our own righteousness. So what we do is we diminish the holiness of God. We bring him right down to our level. We make him sort of a celestial grandfather. And his grace is not the grace that forgives from the place that he is, but his grace becomes something that is close to complicity or acceptance. 
acceptance or tolerance where a celestial grandfather winks at our transgressions. That's not the God of holiness that is wrathful at sinfulness and sends people to hell. You see, we have brought him down so that we can comprehend him, so that we can make him more accessible, more acceptable to fallen pagan people. And thinking that we do that, we talk about the grace by which we have been saved. But brothers and sisters, let me make a statement here. The grace as it is being sold in most churches today cannot save anyone. Only The grace of holiness. Only the grace of absolute holiness can save us. Because that is the distance between the forgiver and the forgiven. And we cannot have a grace that is something that we manufacture, that is like something that we understand. It must be the grace that starts and emanates and is commensurate with the holiness of the forgiver. Otherwise, it won't forgive anyone. Now, I know that's kind of a heavy way to start out our message this morning, and it's quite theological. But I hope that I can make that point. If I do nothing else this morning, I want to do two things. First of all, I want to establish the holiness of God if I possibly can. I, I, I want to exalt him. I want to place him where he belongs, majestic and above all things, high and lifted up. And then I want to impress upon you, brothers and sisters, that the only grace that saves us is a grace that is commensurate with the holiness of God. A grace that is a holy grace. Because that is what we need for sinners to be forgiven. Well, that's kind of an impossible task, but I'm going to try as best as I do it. I'm praying that God will give me the words, but either that or stand between my words and you as we embark upon this passage because it's one of the most extraordinary that you will find in Scripture as far as God's self-revelation. Let me go ahead and make an apology about our text, especially if you're looking at your bulletins or if you were one of those who goes online and reads my notes about the sermon. I know some do before the sermon is actually preached. Um, I'm going to cut out about a third of it, at least, maybe even close to a half of it. Um, And there's two reasons. One, it was just too much. And secondly, I don't want to lose your attention before we get to verse 14. I I was going to start at 7 and take you through because there's lots to learn. Probably I'll do that next week, although I'm not promising. I'm not sure. But I want to jump. I'm going to kind of jump from where we have been all the way down to verse 14 because the context of our story this morning is so important. It's so wrapped up in what I'm going to talk about that I almost called this sermon or entitled this sermon the um, worshiping the holy part two but then this whole concept of the grace of holiness came in and that really is where our focus needs to be now if you've been here you know that we have been taking this period of time between the end of the uh, of the John series and before the beginning of the Luke series uh, it was to begin to take a look at God and to see some of his attributes and I actually started out doing it to comfort those whose world are just about upside down I mean the pandemic the craziness around us many people are upset and it was to remind us that God is sovereign and in complete control 
and we don't need to worry about anything. But it is sort of burgeoned into a, a, a mini-series, if, if you will, where we're actually looking at God and some of his great attributes and especially the holiness of God and how we should worship him. Now, the way we've done that is to sort of trace the history of the children of Israel, starting with the covenant God made with one man, Abraham, through his son Isaac, and then his son Jacob, then his 12 sons, 10 of whom sold Joseph into slavery. But that was a story that showed us the providence of God because a famine came and Abraham's descendants would have died if it had not been for the suffering of Joseph in Egypt. And so ultimately, they were brought to Egypt where they weathered the famine. And not only did they weather it, but they grew in number and prosperity so much so that when Joseph died and a new Pharaoh came along, he was concerned about his own safety, so he turned them into slaves. And for four centuries... They were slaves of Egypt over four centuries. Now, next week when we get to some of these passages, we will probably ask the very finite and fallen human question, God, why did you wait so long for, to, to hear, to see, and to know the trouble of your people? But nonetheless, we went right from there and we went into the life of his deliverer. And that brought us to the life of Moses. We looked quickly at the first 40 years, which is when he was a prince in Egypt. And we thought he might have been all that he needed to be as that prince of Egypt to be his deliverer. But God wanted someone who would actually be broken, be humble. And so he sent him to the desert for 40 years, the second part of his life. And that's where we picked it up. We picked it up as Moses was tending Jethro, his father-in-law's sheep. And came upon Mount Horeb, which is also Mount Sinai. And there he ran face to face with a manifestation of God in the burning bush. And that's where chapter 3 begins. Now before I recount that briefly, because that is very important to our story. Let me redefine some of the terms that we defined last week. I'm not going to redefine all the terms, because all the way through this, we've been defining terms like the eternal decree of God, the sovereignty of God, the providence of God. God is the covenantal God. And all of these things, but last week, those terms that I defined are going to be very important for this week. So the first one was transcendence, the transcendence of God. When we talk about the transcendence of God, we talk about his set-apartness, his holiness, his majesty, the fact that he is high and lifted up and far above his creation. We looked at a passage from Isaiah where God says that my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. As high as the, the, the heavens are above the earth are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. In other words, God is set apart from his creation. He is indeed high and lifted. Lifted up. He is unapproachable. He lives in unapproachable light, and he would be completely unknowable if it were not for his self revelation to us through his creation and also through the Bible that we have. That's the transcendence of God. That transcendence of God speaks not only of his holiness, but of his wrathfulness against all sin against him. But at the same time, we learned that God was imminent. And the imminence of God speaks of his desire to be in the midst of his people. I mean, all throughout... 
the history of humanity starting in the Garden of Eden where he walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening. That's what the garden was all about. But that was broken, of course, by the fall. And then throughout history, we see God reaching out so that he can indeed be um, um, with his people, whether it was through the covenants that he made, whether it was through the tabernacle or the Holy of Holies or the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, the temple. But of course, the greatest expression of his eminence was Jesus Christ. When the, fle- when the word became flesh and tabernacled, dwelt in our midst. And we talked about that. And of course, that, that angel, when he came to tell Joseph that Mary was pregnant through the, um, the, uh, ma- the conception of the Holy Spirit, he said that, um, that um, his name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so, therefore, we see that God is both, both transcendent and eminent. He is both the holy God and the gracious, loving, merciful God who wants to have relationship with his people. Now, um, we, we had one other term that we defined um, last week, which was theophany. And the reason we define that is because that's what we're looking at. When Moses comes upon this burning bush, it is a theophany, which is a physical manifestation of God who is pure spirit, who is pure being. He doesn't have form, but sometimes he takes physical form, in this sense, the fire within the bush to reveal himself. Now, when Moses came upon that burning bush, we noted one thing to start with, and that was that the bush itself was a beautiful picture of the transcendence and eminence of God at the same time in the same place. It was transcendence because the, the bush was on fire, consumed with fire, and yet it didn't burn up. And we talked about that and said that the normal way that a fire operates is that it feeds off of the combustible material until it turns it into a pile of soot. And when there is nothing less to burn, the fire goes out because the fire depends on the bush. It is of the bush. We saw that this particular fire was not of the bush, even though it was in the bush. It did not burn the bush up. And that spoke of the self-existence of God. The fact that God had life in himself and did not feed off of his creation. That is the transcendence of God. But at the same time, there God is in the middle of a bramble bush on top of a mountain that's called a dry rock talking to a goat herder in the middle of a tortured desert to tell him to go save his people. That's eminence. So in the burning bush, we saw both the transcendence of God and the eminence of God in one place at one time. So when Moses sees the burning bush, he turns and begins to approach and God invites him in. He actually calls him in. He calls to him from the fire, Moses, Moses. And we talked about that. What a beautiful personal calling that was as if to say, Moses, I have known you from the foundations of the world and I have this plan for you and I am calling you close to me. But as Moses approached, even though God had called him into that intimate personal relationship, God says, stop, wait, don't come any farther. You need to take the sandals off your feet because the place upon which you stand is holy ground. 
We talked about why it was holy ground. It was holy ground not because there was any intrinsic holiness to the ground itself. It was holy because God was there. The only reason that the ground was holy was because God was there. And the presence of God makes a place holy. And so he established a principle. Moses, you cannot come any farther. I know you. I've known you from the beginning of time. I love you, but you can't come any farther. Why? Because I am holy and you are profane. And we had a principle established the the holiness of God the transcendence of God is in no way diminished by his eminence by his grace by his love and compassion and desire to be in the midst of his people he wants to be there but it does not in any way reduce or diminish his holiness so he tells Moses Moses you're profane and you can't come any farther you need to consecrate yourself in order to stand in my presence and we realize something about The holy and the profane. That which is profane, which is all of us, cannot stand in the presence of the holy, which is God. Unless that which is holy prescribes to that which is profane how that which is profane might sanctify or consecrate himself or herself in order to stand in the presence of the holy. Now, in Moses' case... It was the simple act of take the sandals off your feet. He could have done a lot more. In fact, he did. Later on in the 19th chapter, he's going to tell the children of Israel, you can't come close, don't touch the mountain. Go change your clothes, take a bath for three days, and then you can come and stand in my presence because you're profane and I am holy. And I, as the Holy One, am the one who prescribes how that which is profane can stand in my presence. And brothers and sisters, we took that from the concept of, of, of Moses to the concept of worship. Because you see, the same principle applies. We come into the presence of a holy God and we walk on holy ground because we know the Spirit of God is here when we gather together. And so therefore, we are in a holy place and God tells us, this is how you will worship me. Now, you may like to put on dramas, and you may like to dance, and you might like to put on circum shows, but I'm sorry, that's what you like. It's not what I like. If you are going to come into my presence, my holiness is not diminished by my eminence. So therefore, I want you to worship me in the way I have prescribed. I am spirit, and you will worship me in spirit and truth. And, and, and it was with that principle... Pretty much that we brought last week to a close. That discussion of, of worship and, and how we needed to recognize that when we worship God, yes, he loves us and yes, he calls us forward to that worship. But he says, you need to be reverent. You need to be, you need to be consecrated and sanctified. And there's only one way that you can be consecrated and sanctified. There is only one way that you can stand in the presence of a holy God, and that is by belief in his son, Jesus Christ. We recited that in the Heidelberg Catechism this morning. Well, that brings us to the, 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 what happens after that. And as I said, I'm sorry, I'm going to kind of really fast forward here past uh, seventh, uh, well, actually, I'm going to slow down a little bit in the seventh and eighth verse because I want you to see some things. And then we're going to almost jump to the 13th verse where Moses asks God his name and probably come back and handle these in-between verses a little bit later on. So look at verse 7. I'm going to read 7 and 8 together. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. 
I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians. There's basically two things I want you to see there. First of all, let me remind you of another big word we learned last week. Or most of you know it. And that's an anthropomorphism. And an anthropomorphism is nothing more than a human attribute that the Bible applies to God. So that we as fallen and finite humans can understand something about God. But there is an inherent danger with anthropomorphisms. Because what we end up doing is thinking of God as a human. We start thinking of him as being like us. Because the Bible describes him like us in a way. But that is not there. So you will see God as human. God is spirit. He is pure spirit and he is pure being. That is there so that you can use a human attribute to better understand him. And we have an example of that in the seventh verse. That's the reason I wanted to, I, I wanted to read it. Because one of the problems that we have, one of the problems that we have is that we begin to water God down and make him more human than divine. Notice what it says there. He says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their suffering. Well, the way he says, I have seen their affliction, gives you the impression that he has eyes that he would see with. The way he says, I have heard their cries, makes you think that he has ears that he would hear with. And the way that he says, I know their sufferings, would make you think that he came to that knowledge by what he saw and what he heard. Well, those are anthropomorphisms. God doesn't have eyes, doesn't need them to see. God doesn't have ears and doesn't need them to hear. And he already knows everything, so he doesn't have to learn. All of those are ways that we can understand God a little bit better. And the only thing that God is saying there uh, to Moses is that I am so completely aware of the suffering of my people There is a reason that you don't comprehend for that. We may delve into that a little bit next week. But there in the first of the eighth verse there, he says something of great importance. He says, I have come down. I have come down so that I can deliver my people. I have heard their cries. I have seen their suffering. I know how they suffer. I have come down. I have condescended. And brothers and sisters, that's eminence in a nutshell. When God comes down, we need to recognize something. Every time God comes down, whether it's to make a covenant, whether it is to deliver his people, whether it is to work a mighty miracle, whether it is Jesus in the flesh, every time God comes down, it is a condescension. Now, when we think of people who are condescending, we don't necessarily like them because that's people saying, I'm better than you. And they sort of condescend to you. But in God's case, that is necessary because guess what? He is greater than us. He is high and lifted up. He is completely majestic. And so therefore, there's no way for that majestic, holy God to have any kind of relationship with us unless he condescends. Unless he comes down. Unless he is imminent. But here's the most important point. That doesn't change his holiness. He remains holy even though he comes down to see us. 
He never changes in his holiness. And we as human beings, we want to constantly bring him down to our level and attribute to human things to him and to make him more like us so he's not so above us and he's not so transcendent and he is not so wrathful at our sinfulness. And by doing that, we obliterate the very grace that we need for salvation. Well, as I said, I'm going to jump over the next verses down to the 13th verse because there are some really great things that God reveals about himself there. But down to the 13th verse, Moses is already trying to wiggle out of, of, of going to Egypt. He's trying to think of every way that he can to not have to go. And finally, he's just going to say, God, just send somebody else besides me. But notice what he says in the 13th verse, which really sets us up for the 14th. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Now, what's amazing about that, and we see this about God in many different places. What's amazing about that is God answers them. You know, he should have just squashed him and said, I'll find somebody else who's not going to be so insistent and not going. But you see, actually God had made Moses that way. He'd taken a prince of Egypt and turned him into this humble man that is, is, is worried about being in that position of going to Pharaoh. But as I said, that sets us up for the 14th verse, which is one of the greatest revelations of God that we actually have in Scripture. So I wanted to spend some time on it. Notice what God says. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am, I am has sent you. Now, some people think that, skeptical, skeptic thinks that God is basically telling Moses, it's none of your business who I am, what my name is. I am who I am, you know. So go go do what I'm calling you to do and don't worry about my name. But that's not true in the slightest. God is revealing so much about himself here. But let me see if I can put it in perspective first, especially for we moderns. Um, This word that he responds, I am, um, they, they boil down to, it's just a form of the word to be. And it, it boils down to four consonants, Y-H-W-H. Theologians call those the tetragrammaton. Now, if you, if you know anything about Hebrew, Hebrew is a very ancient language. There are no vowels in Hebrew. So there's no way to determine, you know, full words. And, of course, they write it backwards, which is uh, kind of hard to, to understand. So it's all consonants. And later on, they came and they added what they call breathing marks, which give you an idea of how to pronounce it. But Yahweh is, is a four-letter tetragrammaton consonant representation of what God says I am. Now, we've added vowels to it, so we call it Yahweh, or we call him Yahweh in a very anglicized version, Jehovah. But basically, it's these four letters. And what I want to bring to your attention, and many of you already know this, is the reverence with which the Jews approached these four letters. They would never speak them. They would never say them. They would never dream of saying the name Yahweh, either Yahweh or Jehovah or in any way, form, or fashion. And they would never write it. 
They would never, they would find some way to circumvent even talking about it. And if they were copying the Bible as the Masoretes would, there was an extensive cleansing ritual that they would have to go through before they could continue every time they reached this name. It was just that holy, that sacred, and they revered it to that degree. Now, I'm not suggesting that we do that. I'm not saying that that's right. I think it's kind of over the top and really legalistic, almost superstitious when you put that much emphasis on four letters. But what we have lost, brothers and sisters, is the reverence. You see, it was born out of a reverence for the holiness of the name of God. And so, therefore, they would not dream of slinging around the name of God the way that I hear it done in our culture. And even within the church, quite often with young people, but also with adults, when you, you hear them mimicking the culture, and they say it with intonation, oh my God. And they use that phrase to talk about an amazement or a surprise at something. Now, there's nothing wrong with saying, oh my God, if you are Moses and you're face down in the ground and you have your hands over your head because you're in the presence of the holy and you say, oh my God. Okay, nothing wrong with that. But to sling and throw his name around is blasphemy. It is to take the name of the Lord in vain. And they do it with the name of Jesus and Christ And think nothing of it, both inside and outside of the church. So in other words, the name that God has given us, when Moses asks him, what is your name? And he responds, I am. That's all you need to know. I am. That's a holy name, folks. And we should should approach it with reverence. If anyone should approach the name of God with reverence, it should be us. Well, Most of you know that when a Hebrew talks about the name of someone, they're not just talking about the title by which we call them, uh, that a name has special meaning. In fact, a name is a window into the essence of that person. So when God gives us a name like I am, I am pure being, I am pure spirit, I am who I am, it is a window into who he is. Now, we are blessed in that there are a a number of windows that we have been given as far as who God is. Adonai is one of the names that we call him by that is in, in Scripture. 434 times it is used in Scripture. Adonai means uh, Lord and Master, and, 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 and it gives us that window into God. Another one is Elohim. That is used over 2,000 times, and that speaks of the omnipotent God, the creator God, the God who will ultimately judge us. Then there are lesser used names like El Shaddai, Lord God Almighty, or El Elyon, the Lord God Most High. But no other name that God gives us has as much significance as the one he has just given Moses. I am who I am. So what I want to do this morning, if I can, is to try to dive into that name a little bit and just Say, what does it tell us about God? What does it tell us about His holiness? What does it tell us about His transcendence mainly? Well, the first thing that I am who I am tells me is that God states, I'm unique. 
I'm not, I am not like anyone else. I am not like, I am not as, I am completely and totally unique. Isaiah makes this absolutely clear when he, in the 42nd chapter, says, I am Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. He says in the 45th chapter, I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. In other words, God says, I am absolutely, absolutely, completely pure being, and there is no other being that even compares to me in all of the universe or in any dimension. So therefore, I am who I am, says that God is absolutely and completely unique. It also speaks of the simplicity of God. And I know some of you are going to say, what do you mean simplicity? God is anything else but simple. Well, I'm not using the word in that context when we talk about something being easy to understand as being simple. Simplicity to a theologian speaks of oneness or unity. God is is simplistic in his being, in his essence. He is one. In other words, when we talk about human beings, we talk about the flesh or the body of a human being and the soul of a human being. We have parts. Well, God has no parts. God is all God. He's all essence. He is all pure being, pure spirit. And he is through and through who he is. He does not have parts. Now, this gets a little confusing, I know, when we start talking about the Holy Trinity, because all of a sudden you've got three persons, and wait a minute, you're, you're, how can you talk about three different persons? Well, here's the, the dictionary definition of the Trinity. God is one in essence, one in being, and three in person. They're different. He's simple, he's simple. in his being, in his essence, he's one completely. In fact, Jesus made this clear to us. No one spoke of the tri, or at least introduced us to the triune God more than Jesus did. I mean, he's the one who introduced us to God the Father. He's the one who introduced us to God the Son. He's the one who introduced us to God the Spirit and made it clear that there were three persons within the Godhead. And yet, when they asked him that question, what's the greatest commandments? Matthew, he doesn't give the whole quote that Mark does. And Mark, before he quotes again from Deuteronomy and says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He, he, he goes up a little bit and quotes the Shema. The Lord, a hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's the simplicity of God. God is one. Even though Jesus knew, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, even though we knew the triune God, it is not like my Muslim neighbor constantly says to me, you're a polytheist, you believe in three gods. No, I don't. I believe in one God. One God with three persons. That's the simplicity of God. I am who I am. But of great significance, this title for God, this name for God, speaks of his aseity. And we talked about that last week a little bit. That's another theological term. All it means is the self-existence of God. God has life within himself. No one gave God life. He is a self-existent being who has life within himself. 
Jesus said this also in the fifth chapter of John. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. God has life in himself, and he is actually the giver of life. All life emanates from God, who's the only one who has life in himself. How does the Bible start out? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All things that were made were made through him. All things that have life were given life by him. John expands upon that in the, uh, a, a set of verses that you should be able to almost quote by now. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. And here's the important verse or uh, phrase in this. In him was life. And that life became the light of man. God is self-existent and he has life in himself. That is what we mean by aseity. And brothers and sisters, once you start talking about God being self-existent and having life in himself, then all of a sudden an avalanche of attributes just kind of flow right after it. Not only is God self-existent, he is pre-existent. That it means when there was nothing else, God was. God is constantly the great I am. And that everything that is made, he made, as we read in John. And that there was nothing that was made that he did not make. So it means that he created all things ex nihilo, out of nothing, through the power of his will. He was pre-existent. And that's going to become important a little bit later on when we talk about the necessity of God. God was pre-existent to all that is. And of course, what does that bring right up immediately? God is eternal. God always has been. There's never been a time that God was not. There never will be a time that he is not. He is, he was, he is, and he will come. Or he will be, as we read in Revelation. I am the Alpha and the Omega. That is what is known in Hebrew as a merism. It goes to the very beginning, and then it goes to the very end, and it talks about everything that is in between. I'm the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. He goes on to say, the Lord who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, once again, we need to start to learn to identify anthropomorphisms because it's really going to help us in understanding the God we serve. He was, he is, and he will be. Well, all three of those designations speak of time. We are humans. We are bound by time. God is not. So that's why I think it's inaccurate to actually say, and you hear this all the time, God, as the great I am, lives in the eternal present. He always is in every part of the existence that is. Well, that's good for a human to understand that because present and past and future are time designations and God is outside of time. So I think it is better for us to describe God. He is eternally in the state of I am. He is eternally in the state of being. He always is. He always says, I am. No matter what or when or how many gazillion um, millennia pass, he says, I am. Because he is eternal being constantly, I am. Of course, when we talk about the 
eternality of God, we also start talking about the infinitude of God. Because this is the I am in a time designation, and this is the I am in a spatial designation, right? Now, of course, those are, again, human beings trying to understand God. We can't comprehend the infinite. But there is a total, complete infinitude to God. There is nothing that holds him in and nothing that binds him in. We think the universe is pretty big, but he could hold it in the palm of his hand if he had one. There is no place that the I am is not. And so what does that say? The omnipresence of God. That nowhere, no matter where we are in this vast universe, God is present. God is there. Every single square centimeter or millimeter or point, God says, I am. Because God is there. And of course, that brings the other attributes falling down on us. His omnipotence. He has to hold the universe together. His omniscience, he has to know everything. His immutability. Do you see how much is in this one statement? I am who I am. And you say, Pastor Kirby, don't you think you're stretching that a little bit? I don't think so. I don't believe so. I believe it is all there. I know that all of these are verified in other parts of Scripture. So I don't question whether they're true. But if you logically begin to think of what God means when he says, I am who I am, you shall tell them I am has sent you. All of these things just logically flow. But of all the things that God's statement of I am actually means, two, I think, are the most important. One, the necessity of God. And two, the holiness of God. First of all, the necessity of God. When God says, I am, he says, I am necessarily. Now, there are two things, and I grant, I'm sorry, I'm going to get a little bit philosophical here, brush up against ontology a little bit, but there's no other way to consider the depth of what God says about himself without looking at it from an expanded point of view. There are two things in the universe. One is what is necessary, and other is what is contingent, okay? That which is necessary to the universe is if that which is necessary did not exist, the universe could not exist or stay, it would implode upon itself. It is necessary for the existence and the creation of the universe. Everything else is contingent, okay? Now, there are two theories about what is necessary in the universe. For most of the history of humanity, and I'm serious, For most of the history of humanity, up until the last 250 years, there has only been one answer to that question. It has not even been debated. Everyone knows that being is necessary and everything that that being made is contingent, dependent upon that being. Now, every culture had a different name for the being or a different idea of what that being was. And they certainly had different ideas about the way things were created. But it was universal amongst all the great thinkers, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, these guys that would are intellectual giants and would turn half of those who are antitheists today as intellectual midgets. They all accepted the truth that being is necessary. It's only been the last couple of hundred years that science has tried to eradicate God out of the entire concept of how we got to be here. And so they say God is not there. He doesn't exist. He is therefore not necessary. That what is necessary in the universe is 
matter or maybe energy or gravity. But it's not God because there's no being that exists that everything that is contingent has come from that which is necessary, which is either matter or energy or gravity. Well, there's no doubt what Scripture says. I mean, here we have it. God says, I am. (laughs) I mean, I am. I'm necessary. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Out of nothing, ex nihilo, God willed it to be. And so there is a coherent, cogent explanation of how we came to be. God, as our being, is necessary and he made all that is. It is contingent. If God stops being God and stops sustaining his universe, it falls in upon himself as it will one day when he brings it to an end. That's a, a very logical, coherent theory of what is necessary. But the anti theists have a big problem. And actually, the antitheist who says that God doesn't exist and, and that it is, it is matter or energy that is eternal and therefore necessary and always has been. And all that is being like your mind, my mind, my understanding. All that came from inanimate matter because inanimate matter is what is important. They have a real intellectual problem. They can't prove it. And they call themselves scientists. And a scientist is supposed to make theories based on observable phenomena. And yet, every anti-theist you talk to will badger you and pummel you and drive you down to tell you that you're an idiot because you believe in the fact that being is necessary. It's actually the other way around. Dr. Sproul tells story of having a conversation with Carl Sagan. If you know who Carl Sagan was, he was a, 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 a great proponent of the Big Bang Theory and a militant anti-theist. He, he wasn't just wanted to propose his side. He wanted to cut out the belief of God from people's minds. And, and they were having a conversation. I don't know if it was a formal debate or what it was. He didn't say. But he, he says that, that, you know, he was explaining the Big Bang and, you know, how it's the point of singularity and it kind of compresses into this minute thing and explodes and they can track the way the expansion of the universe is occurring and they, they trace it all back to a point of singularity. And Dr. Sproul smiled and he said, okay, well, that's all great and good, but what happened before that? What occurred before the Big Bang? How did the point of singularity get there? And where did all that matter come? You know what Dr. Sagan said? Oh, it doesn't matter. We don't go back that far. We don't need to go back that far. We don't need to talk about whatever happened before the Big Bang. Big Bang, because that's where it all began. So who cares what happened before that? And Dr. Sproul says, I care. Because you are intellectually dishonest. Because you say you're a scientist and you say that you believe in observable, verifiable fact and yet you are a blind fideist. You are you're believing in blind faith even to the point that I wouldn't believe in. You're believing in something that you cannot possibly prove and yet you call yourself a scientist. So the next time some anti-theist starts to beat on you because you believe in being 
tell them they're intellectually dishonest, that before they do that, they have to find some scientific evidence for what occurred before the Big Bang. Don't have to do that in the Bible because God is necessary. I am who I am. I'm absolutely, completely necessary. Probably the greatest thing about this holy and transcendent God is the fact that he is holy. Set apart, not impacted by his, by his universe, but wants to be in the midst of it. Don't you love the way that he puts it when Moses answer, asks him, Who are you? I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you. Not a word of explanation. The Bible doesn't explain the existence of God. It doesn't defend the existence of God like I just did. God doesn't go into that. He simply makes a statement of fact. I am who I am. And that's all you need to know. I am. I am of necessity. I am of eternity. I am of infinitude. I am of great power. I am in every single context you can imagine me. But I am and I'm not going to defend myself. Everyone in the universe knows that God is holy, folks, except us. We're the only people who don't realize that God is holy. The very ones he made in his image and breathed his life into and has revealed himself to, we're the only ones that don't recognize the holiness of God. Jesus came and what did he teach us when he gave us the prayer that we just, we, we just recited? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed. Holy, sacred, lifted up is your name. Even the demons know that God is one and tremble. When Isaiah had that great vision, we looked at it last week, the sixth chapter of Isaiah, when he saw the Shekinah of God come and fill the temple, there were seraphim, mighty angels that would cause any of us to quake in fear above God, and they covered their faces with their wings so they would not see and look upon the holiness of God. They cried out to each other, we are told, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of His glory. Most of you know that there is no superlative in the Hebrew language. No way for them to say the holiest. And so they repeat it three times. Holy, holy, holy. It means there's no one that approaches the holiness of God. At the other end of the book, we have the most extraordinary vision into the very throne room of God. And God is on his throne and there are four creatures that surround him defined to us in apocalyptic terms. They are not to protect God from us, but to protect the creation from him, from his holiness. And they are, we are told that day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is I am. Everyone in the universe knows that God is holy except us. Well, some of us do. The humble do. The broken do. Those who recognize their sinfulness, they do. Beautiful story in the Old Testament of a young woman who had a real situation on her hands. She was in a polygamous relationship, which some had in those days, and She was barren and couldn't deliver a child. And the other wife was just delivering babies right and left. And 
So she went to the temple and prayed so fervently. You know this to be Hannah's prayer. And she started it out like this. There is none holy like the Lord. For there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Brothers and sisters, do you realize the depths to which we have fallen? Jesus says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hannah starts out and says, you are the holy God. How many of us bend down to the floor and say, God, you are holy. Forgive me for entering your presence. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who gives me the right to address you. Even though you were holy. No, we start right out asking for the things we need. And sometimes we even shake our fists and how can you let this happen? Not realizing that we are addressing the holy of holies. Dear brothers and sisters. We have brought God down to our level. In an effort To make him more accessible, more accepted by the culture around us. And to make him less frightening. But in doing so, brothers and sisters, we have negated the very thing that saves us. And the very thing that saves us is the grace of holiness. Not the grace of a withered, watered down, and diminished God who winks at our sins, who condones them who allows a Christian to be what they call a carnal Christian, allows someone to still use his name in vain, to not give him any change, no change in their life whatsoever, and to never ever deem him as holy. And he gives grace by which we are saved. That grace will not save you. It cannot save you. Now, that does not mean, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that the thief on the cross knew anything about grace that saved him. So I'm not saying that you have to understand what I'm saying this morning. What I'm saying about the holiness of grace is not that you have to understand that in, able, in order to be a beneficiary of that grace. But out there in the world of Christendom today, it is being sold. It is being taught. It is being preached that God is not the transcendent God of holiness. He is simply the intimate God of grace. And therefore, he is like one of us. Just Just another guy on the bus, as a popular song said years ago. Just like one of us. And he still, we say, saves us by grace. But brothers and sisters, that grace won't save you. The only grace that will save you is the grace of holiness. Because that is where the standard is. Jesus said it himself. He says, therefore, you must be perfect. Even as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's the standard by which you will be judged. That's the standard of holiness. Just the fact that He is imminent and gracious does not mean He is not holy. Peter put it this way. He said, as, you, as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct since it is written, you shall be holy for I am Holy. God calls you to holiness. And if you've watered him down to here, if he's just simply a better human than you are, and that is where your grace emanates, then how is that grace going to get you to his holiness? 
Only the grace that begins in holiness. Only the grace that is commensurate with holiness. Only the grace that reflects that holiness is gracious enough to forgive a sinner in the eyes of a holy God. Only that grace saves. None other. It requires the grace of holiness, brothers and sisters, because only that grace is what can fill the gap between the forgiver and the one who needs forgiven. I don't care how high you elevate yourself or how far you bring God down. You cannot bridge that gap. Only the grace of holiness can bridge that gap. Who's the grace of holiness? Jesus. Jesus is the grace of holiness. Jesus is the one who came from the Father. I can almost vision this. I know it didn't happen, but I can almost envision this. God's telling Moses, Moses, go and tell them I am has sent you. Tell them who I am. The father is saying to the son, go and tell them I am has sent you. Go and tell them that I am sending the holiness of my own son down there as grace. And that grace will save them and elevate them up into my presence. A little known doctrine that we don't talk about very often is called... The doctrine of humiliation. Paul talks about it to the Philippians and this is what he says. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who though he was in the form of God. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. I don't know what this says to you. But what it says to me is I desperately need a savior. Or else I'm going to hell. Because I can never reach in any way, form or fashion. The holiness that is God. But God in his mercy. In his holy love and holy grace. We don't need to bring him down. We don't need to diminish him. We don't need to make him somebody who forgives sinners who don't believe in him. It is the repentant sinner that he calls into grace and elevates into his presence. I need that savior, folks. Because otherwise I'm lost. And let me tell you something, I don't care what you think, you need that Savior too, because otherwise you're lost. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other name by which you may be saved other than the name of Jesus. And that is what Paul continues in the book of Philippians to say, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Who shall I say has sent me? Go and tell him, I am, has sent you. The holy God who loved you enough to send the grace of holiness. Let's pray. Lord, how do we begin to thank you? How do we begin to comprehend the incredible grace of holiness? Or the holiness of that grace. The holy grace that you have given. 
to save us from a holy wrath and a holy God who is totally inaccessible to us, unapproachable, who lives in unapproachable light, who cannot be known by fallen human beings, and yet you make known to us so that you can save us. Father, forgive us for the way that we have, like the Pharisees, tried to narrow that gap, tried to bring ourselves up to your level or you down to our level, created all kinds of liturgical ways that we can have our sins forgiven, redefined you, de-supernaturalized you, elevated ourselves or just simply X'd you out of the picture. God, forgive us. We do not deserve anything else but be destroyed as we know one day we will be, where this earth will be. But until then, Lord, may we proclaim the excellencies of him who has drawn us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that's you, the holy, who remains holy, even though you are gracious. You have condescended to extend grace to us, but that in no way diminishes your holiness. Your grace is commensurate with your holiness and will elevate us to stand in your presence for an eternity. Thanks be to our Lord Jesus Christ who makes it possible. In whose name we pray. Amen.